doing missional hermeneutics. And we're going to start with the, another text that will be introduced and uh, considered by Lisa and then by my friend Ross. So the, the next text we want to look at is 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. And again, I'll just begin by reading the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again, as you also join in helping us by your prayers, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So just a couple of things I want to lift up from this passage in terms of um, missional hermeneutics. I think from this, this is at the opening of the letter. And so right at the beginning of the letter, Paul really like lays out for the Corinthians the character of God. The God who is the God of mercy, the Father of mercies, the God of all consolation. Um, God is one who comforts. God is one who encourages. And so one of the words that, keep, that keeps reoccurring in this passage is parakaleo, which means to encourage, to comfort. And so he's really given the Corinthians a portrait of who this God is and um, what God is about. And so he points out that God is the one who encourages us. And then when we talk about a mission, he says um, he, God consoles us in all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction. So it's God comforts us, encourages us, in the rough places of life so that the, what God gives us can outflow or overflow to others so that we can be able to comfort and encourage any who may be facing all types of affliction. So again, this kind of um, divine agency, right? God is the one who comforts and consoles and through the comfort and consolation God gives us, we are able to go out and um, walk alongside those who are in any type of affliction because we have experienced God's own grace in our own lives. 
Um, so we think about um, God who comforts, encourages, and also um, another interesting part is when Paul really is talking about transparency. Um, Tim was talking about that earlier. He's being very transparent with the Corinthians here, right? In um, verse 8, that he experienced something that was so um, just unbelievably difficult that he didn't think he was going to make it. And so he's willing to be transparent to his audience that I really thought we may die. I despaired of life itself. And then he goes on to say, so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So another picture of God's character is God is the one who rescues, right? God is the one who delivers. God is the one who raises the dead. So when we talk about participating in God's mission, um, God is on a mission. How do we as pastors and leaders participate in God um, raising the dead, so to speak? And um, we think about when we're ministering to people often who feel maybe abandoned by God, feel like they don't count, um, feel like they're in situations where they are going to die. Mm -hmm. How do we walk alongside them and say, and speak the word of life to them? You're going to live. Um, so how do we partner with people who feel like um, Paul felt in this situation? He despaired of life. That we can partner in God's resurrection project, if you will. Um, also, I think another important thing to think about in this passage is God does not abandon us in our suffering. And um, that's very important, I think, for people to know that um, despite what they may be going through and experiencing, God is walking with you. And I'm going to walk with you as well. Um, we're partnering with God and walking with you through this situation. Another important piece I want to lift up from this passage is when Paul says um, in verse 10, he who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. So it's this idea that God rescued me in the past, I'm going to rely on God to rescue me again, which means I'm going to be in a situation where I need God to rescue me again, right? So he's kind of expecting more suffering, more affliction, but he's also expecting God to show up. He's also expecting God to be there. And then he says in verse 11, as you also join in helping us by your prayers. So this, um, this uh, intimacy with his congregation in the sense that your prayers matter. We are connected in such a way that God's future deliverance is connected to how you pray for me. And um, I think when we talk about prayer, we talked about prayer earlier, how the importance of prayer in our congregation, and I think it's important for our congregants to know that their prayers matter. And I think this is a good passage to point that out because Paul is saying, I'm counting on God to rescue me again as you also join in helping us by your prayers. So um, calling the Corinthians to partner with God in this deliverance project or rescue project, if you will. Um, so how do we call our congregants alongside God in mission? God's project of rescuing and delivering. Um, prayer is one way to partner with God in God's mission in rescuing the cosmos. It's a, um, a cosmic deliverance. Um, 
So yeah, just want to lift those highlights, I think, from this passage in regard to missional hermeneutics. Any further commentary? We want to hear how it translates into ecumenical for, uh, missional formation. I'd love to lift up your first point, Lisa, and see if we can get our pastors to respond a little bit. Um, but I, I, the the um, um, verse four, um, which, as you pointed out, um, I mean, there's there's the mission, mm-hmm. right? That we are the the objects of God's mercy and comfort, mm-hmm. um, and and that's a that's a wonderful thing. But we we were talking. Uh, you two were talking about kind of the church meeting people's needs and kind of that's their expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and of course, the, the verse doesn't stop there, right? I mean, that's where I think lots so of times folks in congregations, like that's enough. Like, I'm hurting, I'm afflicted, God meets me in that, mm-hmm. comforts me. Uh, but Paul goes on to say, um, that's so that you can go forth and do likewise, that you can take that consolation that you've received and pour it into other people so it doesn't mean that we're not comforted right that happens so it's not like you don't get to be comforted because you have to go comfort other people uh-huh. but that you're that you receive that mercy so that you can be empowered to go and extend it to others and I'm wondering kind of how that resonates with the with the two of you as you lots of folks have the expectation that what happens in church is you I mean, you're supposed to be comforted I mean Um, well, and one of the ways that we're, I mean, it, it really is cyclical, right, what you're saying, because, I mean, one of the ways that God comforts us is often through the communion of saints. Uh, one of the most powerful moments I've ever had as a pastor was um, about a year ago, my father passed away after um, a brief and very sudden decline. Uh, and I think any time you lose a parent, that's a, that's a particularly... Um, difficult. It's a uniquely difficult kind of loss. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, so flew back from Austin, um, helped arrange the service, um, and it was at the end of the service as we were, so I was turning around and walking out, and I was like the first one of kind of the family, my stepmother and everybody was behind, but just how we happened to be seated. Uh, I was the first one out, my wife and my daughters. And there were people from every chapter of my ministry mm-hmm. who were there that I didn't see until I was leaving the church, mm-hmm. including three individuals who flew from Austin uh, who had been on my search committee. They were just there. Um, it caused me to think about a lot of things different, but that, that idea of Emmanuel, of God with us, mm-hmm. those those people were embodying to me. None of them could fix it or make it better, but that we're with you yeah. in this affliction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's where, that's part of why the transparency is so important, is it's not just, uh, it's not just to illustrate how God's done this in the past, but it's also to allow people in to minister to us. I, I, I believe we are called to be part of the community. We're, we have a calling in that, but I, I'm, a, I'm a believer of, uh, one time I had a pastor, David, it's like, oh, I could never be in a small group of people in my own church. And I said, well, I think you're in the wrong church then. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. If you don't want to be, if you don't want to be in yeah. community with the people in your congregation, then that probably tells you something. You, you, these are the people you want to do life with uh, at some level. Now, there's there's certain things a pastoral accountability group is helpful with because it's vocationally yeah. resonates more. But I, I love the fact that in my last two churches, our deepest friendships have come from within the within the congregation. Um, and those people were important. So, I, I, you know, I, I have been a benefit of that, of, of not only God's comfort and affliction, but of the community being the sent ones to do it yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. So it helps, to, it helps to then teach and exhort people in a way to do that mm-hmm. when, when it's your own story that's a part of that cycle. It's such a, a, a beautiful place as a pastor in the, in the tension of the, of the painful moments of loss, but then seeing that those whom you have walked beside now walking beside you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The ministry of presence is just so yeah. Yeah. important. We have a saying in our church that we constantly try to have a home, and that is no one walks alone. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of really thematic for our congregational care, no one walks alone. Um, and and I, I think that... Um, um, like like Thomas, I, I don't I don't do congregational care as much as I used to. I should say I, I, I'm not there for you know, a lot of sicknesses and so forth because we have somebody who does that now. He, he just left my executive pastor, and uh, it's funny because I had lamented not having the opportunity to be there and walk with people like I used to. And I guess it's okay, fine, but <laughs> here's your answer. <laughs> So, 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 but, but, but it's amazing how it enriches your your ministry preaching when you you realize fundamentally how you're supposed to walk with one another. And um, it's interesting um, that um, a few weeks ago we were in Washington, my wife and I, and I got a call that one of the members um, who'd been with me for some time, an elderly gentleman, was sick and probably might be the last few days. And I was in D.C. and then again I'm lamenting I don't have my ticket pass to that. You know, I, I really don't have anybody really sitting beside him. I mean, I, the, the outcome and so forth, but pastoral presence. Mm-hmm. So I get back, and we fly in on Thursday, and I get a chance to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get off the plane and rush right over there. It's, it's about 10 minutes. And uh, I get to the hospital, and so his family's all there, and, and he's, he's, he's hanging in there. He's, you know, this is a day before he's passed. And so um, they asked to pray, and I come over and hold his hand, and um, I'm, I'm there to console. And I, I pray, and after I pray, there's a hush, silent hush. And all the focus from this family turns to him on his bed, and he's whispering, Thank God, thank God. And he raises his hand barely, and a tear falls from his eye. Something happened, it suggested to me, I'm here to console you. <laughs> but there's a message yeah. in this moment that in the midst of, of such pain and with the eternal in the shadows calling, here he is. And I, I sensed that that moment was telling me who consoles us in all our flesh. You know, that, that was the message to me. Pastor, yeah. The reason I can do this is he consoles us in all our yeah. and, and so there's, 
this happening. Um, and so I think it's important for us to walk but together, but the message is, is always the same. You never walk alone. And once you know that, it's your responsibility to communicate to others. And just to add to that from the text, later on in the letter, Paul talks about how he was distressed and somewhat anxious. But then he says, I was refreshed by the coming of Titus. So again, to talk about this presence of believers, like part of God's comforting us is um, being with the pre- in the presence of other believers and how um, at different moments in our life, where we do feel alone, when, when, when we're with other believers, something happens, right? You get this to reignite. <laughs> yeah. You get reignited. You get reinvigorated just by being in the presence of other believers. I think like, later on in the letter, we get this another concrete expression of what Paul is talking about here, about um, we are comforted so that we can comfort others. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a thing we've, we've talked about before, but, you know, there's that tension you sit in, I think, as a pastor, of the loneliness of the vocational calling, mm-hmm. which there is a certain amount of loneliness mm-hmm. to it. Um, and you don't want to cross that line, and I think, I know I've seen it, I hopefully haven't done it, but I maybe have, where your wounds start becoming so present that they become a defining narrative for the congregation. Yeah. Like, when, when you're... When you're when your affliction becomes all the congregation can see, which happens, that's not healthy. And yet at the same time, if we live in that isolation where we, where we remain the, the figurehead, we rob the congregation of something too. So it feels like it's this, it's yeah. this yeah, tension that we're called to sit in as pastors as to how do we, because ultimately it's that, it's that window to the cross idea, right? It's like, because this can illuminate the gospel and the call, um, if we if we don't share, we we rob that. But at the same time, our own wounds or agendas can also take that over. Um, but it's a healthy thing to see that someone like Paul begins a letter mm-hmm. with this yeah. ability to express his own yeah. affliction and, mm-hmm. and grief, uh, and and yet the presence of Christ to those come to him. So. Going to ask a follow up. Go ahead, Tim. I'll ask after you did. Well, um, no, I was just I was kind of replying what, what Thomas said that, um, you know, I, I struggled with that. I, at one point when I went through a big conflict, uh, it was such a struggle getting up every Sunday and mm-hmm. trying so hard not to believe uh, on, on people. Um, I really wrestled that. I, had to, I mean, I had to wrestle with that, and it was a challenge not to come up here bitter, angry, bleeding mm-hmm. on people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but what I found was was that in my in my um, sense sensing the need to hide, I was robbing them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and wow. and and they everybody knew what was going on. And you get up there acting like nothing's happening mm-hmm. in your sermon, mm-hmm. and so I realized I had it was an opportunity again. There are opportunities to wrestle with it, to share but also to help them to see like Paul, to give thanks mm-hmm. in all circumstances, and then to help them to see the conflict, but to, to, but to, to, to trust in the confidence we have 
that 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 you know as we as we as we stabilize ourselves in Christ, we are victorious. Mm-hmm. You know, so helping them to see the victory and all and the expectation. And so I think it is it's a beautiful tension, it's an mm-hmm. opportunistic mm-hmm. tension to, to to be able to wrestle, not believe, but to also allow them to mm-hmm. uh, tour some of the candidates that we call. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So I'm I'm sort of groping for a follow-up question. So give me a little bit of leeway, but I think it's a I think it's a question that only pastors could answer. Um, so if I'm following Paul correctly here, he he says there's a there's a certain sort of um, um, there's an energizing quality um, for his ministry in the fact that he's suffered, realized that Christ has suffered also, and so walks along with him and consoles him and comforts him. And so Paul kind of find, finds a kind of a strength for his mission, right? Um, in the fact that he has suffered. And so he can help others who are suffering. So I guess the, the one side of the coin of the question is, do you find that folks who have struggled and suffered and kind of found that comfort and consolation, are they particularly ready to, to, uh, to minister, to carry out that mission in the world. And the other side of that coin is, if, if you haven't struggled, if you're too comfortable, um, are you numb to sort of the, 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 the impetus to go out and participate in God's mission in the world? You totally got this. <laughs> um. So how about struggle is, is the question. Does the struggle somehow fit us, drive us out into the world in gratitude and renewed strength? And if I if I haven't struggled, if I'm just comfortable, am I numb to that imperative to kind of go out and console and comfort others? So my initial response is yes. Um, I, I think that there is a necessity for struggle. Um, but there is this invitation invitation to, to struggle as you come to Christ, you know, that you're going to have to deal with pain and loneliness and all that. Yeah, that's not the best invite. I'm not sure I want that. But but as, as we as we navigate this road, you, that's how you see the, the power of Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit operating in your life as you as you wrestle in those places. I I happen to um, you know find this place where I delight in my hardships. Know, trying to get to their point. And again, I'm not saying I'm passing on invites for it, but but, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but but realizing that those are the things that have matured me the most and have shaped me. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know everybody is is not ready to um, enter into a struggle, and then six weeks later they want to tell uh, everybody stand up, and take the mic, and then share with them mm-hmm. your struggle. It is a process. It is a journey. But I think as you journey and you see. The fact that you are not walking alone, like Paul, uh, that you are being consoled, that you are you are not um, you are not you are not going to end up being defeated in this, that there is a, a restoration process that happens, then then it, it allows us this opportunity to be um, to, to to proclaim the good news in a way that doesn't leave people stagnant, but seeing themselves. Refreshed, but I, I happen to think it's hard to relate if you haven't gone through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's the. Uh, I remember hearing hearing someone teach on the the Good Samaritan, 
mm. right? Mm. And 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 the whole point they were talking about was the priest and the Levite who passed by might be a little more numb mm. to what it's like to be beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, but it's the Samaritan, mm. the one that in many ways that is their lived experience. Mm. I mean, it's the it's the empathy, mm. right? And and I remember the first time someone talked about it and said to the the whole point of, one of the things to think about the Good Samaritan is not to try to be the Samaritan. That's religious rule following. That's the do-goodism. I'm going to be the Samaritan today. Well, you probably won't be. It's to remember the times when you've been the traveler. And you can remember the times you've been the traveler and how God is, has come in that place of affliction. Then that's actually how we begin to embody what the Samaritan does. Um, so I, I, I very much believe that that, that is um, at the same time there's a as we were talking about before with well I won't speak for Tim but for myself um, there's that point where your wounds can do, still be so fresh yeah. I mean I remember, I remember one time one time a person came who had been through a, a, a divorce and I don't divorce it's very personal in my family. I, I, I know very personally, there's probably many of us too, though. It's a, it's a devastating thing. And this person wanted to start, felt like they had been called the leaded divorce recovery group. And I remember, good news, a, a mentor said to me, I was like, I think you need a little more recovery before you start the. I mean, this was someone who was still so yeah. locked into the, this yeah. defining narrative that, yeah, I think it would have it would have been hard. So I do think we need to. Hopefully, have gone through some healing um, rather than just being wounded. But but no, I I that Good Samaritan passage is for me, and and to be able to tap back into that, right? To be able to tap back into those times where we have been. It's actually one of the great parts in coming here, as I shared about meeting Daryl. I, I don't think very much anymore about my struggles starting seminary and how lost I was. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to come back and remember that. Mm-hmm. And remember that this is one of the examples for me of someone coming along. I wasn't beaten up on the side of the road and left for dead, but I was hurting pretty bad and lost. Mm-hmm. And to have someone come along and mm-hmm. it was decidedly probably inconvenient to have breakfast for two and a half years with uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. But um, it's important for me to remember that. Because I can start making the mistake of thinking I, I'm here because I, I work hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and this is the same with some of the institutional mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it's, it's easy for someone like me to to wake up on third base and believe I hit a triple, and, and that would be that would be uh, that would be false. That would be false. So. Well, we can broaden the conversation. Uh, we have time to do that. This is our, our last opportunity to engage in a conversation in this conference about initial communities and sexual practice. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were... Wait, look, I do want to talk about John. That's what I yeah. thought. Okay. I, I just wasn't sure whether what transition we were making. Sorry. sorry. It's like, no. Please, please. Please. Like, no. Okay, sorry. Would you like to say something about John? I was also really being blessed by this discussion. So, um, well, um, 
we're approaching Holy Week and um, time uh, in, in which many um, churches do turn to the lectionary. I think it's, it's significant that the second Sunday of Easter, um, we're called to read John 20. Um, Jesus' appearance to his disciples on the evening of the resurrection, um, but then also one week later. And in many ways, this is um, the climax of the gospel, uh, the story that John has been telling from the very beginning. Uh, he he um, begins with a, a prologue that, it, that um, takes us back to the beginning when the Word was with God and the Word was God. And all things were made through him. Um, it takes 20 chapters to, um, to really understand what it means that the Word became flesh. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in what sense is it right to uh, confess the Word is God? How can, how can we do that as those who know that God is one? Mm-hmm. Um, and so here um, at the climax of the Gospel where we, we get the, the confession in the mouth of Thomas, my Lord and my God, I think it's significant that this is also the passage where the, the community is sent. Uh, and is empowered by the Spirit. So let's, let's read it together. Um, when it was evening on that first day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Um, Just a a, a few comments to to orient our discussion. John's gospel is one of these that has to be read and reread and reread. It's an amazingly simple story. John repeats words and phrases over and over again. We love, love reading it with new Greeks, new students new to the Greek language because you, you, can, you can get the vocabulary, the basic vocabulary, so quickly. Um, but the story is one that involves, it invites us to, to go really deep. And, and this passage has some of these really key terms. Uh, believe or trust, peace, sending, um, in some ways, uh, if we had been hearing this narrative all the way through, there, there are many things Jesus says now as he's back with his disciples that recall his last discourse with them. 
It's a big stretch in John, from, from John 13 all the way to Jesus' prayer for his followers and those who would come to believe through them in John 17. Uh, Jesus has promised that although he is to be taken away from them, he will see them again and they will rejoice. And in fact, that's what happens. Um, Jesus grants them his peace and then appears among them and grants them his peace yet again. Um, Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been speaking about being sent. And now in sending the disciples, he invites them and us um, to let Jesus' own life be the missional hermeneutic. What does it mean to be one who is sent? And so um, if we go back into the gospel where Jesus speaks explicitly about being sent, we, we learn that Jesus doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks the words of the one who sent him. He doesn't do things except those things for which he has been sent by God. Uh, he doesn't seek his own glory or glory from people. Rather, he seeks to please the one who sent him. And we find that in being sent, Jesus, in fact, is not ever apart from the Father, is not alone. But in fact, in being sent, he abides with the Father and the Father with him. And I think that invites us then to think, well, what is it to be sent? It's actually to be invited to abide. Um, To be sent by God is to be invited to a relationship in which the unity that exists between the Son and the Father is the unity, in fact, into which we are now embedded. Um, Christ in us and we in Christ. The Father in us and we in the Father. And key to this is the sending of the Spirit. Um, The Spirit now breathed out on the disciples is the one who continues to mediate Jesus' presence. Um, The one who will teach you and remind you all of the things that I said while I was with you, Jesus says. The one who will lead you into all the truth. Uh, The one by whose power you will also do the deeds that I've done. The work of the one who sent me. You will speak the words that I have spoken. The words of the one who sent me. Um, And I I think this uh, gospel in particular um, is is a narrative way through this dichotomy that we often struggle with, which is, are we called into a relationship with God that somehow is internal, or are we called out into the world, into relationship with others? And here we find it's not an either or. Mm -hmm. In fact, to be in close fellowship with God is to be in fellowship with those to whom God has sent us. Um, and I think one of the beautiful things about, about John's gospel uh, in a different key, Matthew's gospel, is that in the story of Jesus, we f- see what it is to be a human being who lives a life in fellowship with God, a life for others. Um, so Paul's great. Paul's a great example, in some ways more accessible to us probably because we can see more of Paul's weaknesses. Um, but Jesus promises us that if we... Um, trust in him and follow him that in fact his life becomes our own uh, and is manifested in and through our lives uh, so that's a, maybe just to, to set the table a bit um, one question I, I would be interested in hearing others around the table talk about is um, what does it look like in practical terms, we've talked about this somewhat um, but to, to live a life empowered by the spirit mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like something that a certain part of the church owns really well. Um, other parts of the church have more trouble talking about that. Um, what, does it, what does it look like? If, if 
life in the spirit is key to being God's sent people. How do we tap into that? How does that manifest in our in our lives and our communities? said that it's striking how often in the gospel Jesus contrasts his own free freedom of speech he's, he's going to say hard things but he claims I'm not here speaking on my own I'm not seeking my own reputation and in contrast his his opponents who are also teachers of Israel's scriptures and traditions he says you you care so much about glory from one another that you're not interested in the glory that comes only from God and I, I, I think about that as an academic, you know, where the currency at Duke University is glory, is honor. Um, it's not all that different at Princeton Seminary, I heard, to, to be frank. And, and yet, that is exactly what cuts me off from the real authority that comes from the surrender to the Spirit. So the, the, we talked at Covenant, we talked about these practices of solitude, community, and service. Um, some of you... I, I uh, may have read some of Henry Nowen's stuff on solitude, but it made me think of this because we, we talk about this a lot. Is, is Nowen, Nowen talks about the importance, for instance, in Luke 6, like we discussed, of Jesus starting the day mm-hmm. on the mountain in prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he does come down to the disciples and he does send them out to do this work. But he says that if we don't, if we don't start there, mm-hmm. he said that we, we lose sense of where our belovedness comes from, mm-hmm. is what Nowen says. Um, that, that we hear the words that, that were spoken to Jesus, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son. Um, and that we, we need that in our lives. As the creation, we all need that place where our belovedness, our worth, um, the Imago Dei is, is proclaimed uh, in, in us. And now it says that if we don't start on the mountaintop, then we need our belovedness to be affirmed in other places. And he talks about in community. So we become conflict avoiders or people pleasers, which Mm. the church has got one or two of those uh, that are in it. And pastoral ministry has one or two of those um, because we need the affirmation of people to give us our sense of belovedness and worth. Uh, Or we put it into our our work, our vocation. uh, is the other place, one of the other places that Nouwen says that we will find. So, so, um, uh, we, we, we find our sense of identity in our resume and our accomplishment. Uh, it's not that any of those things are bad. Obviously, community is a good thing, and uh, 
uh, the call to vocation and to do so well and to be faithful in that um, is good. But if it's where our our and that's that's some of the things we've talked about in our in our starting with this practice of solitude before community and service is that sense of belovedness. to um, point out that there's a similarity that I'm seeing between um, this last verse of John chapter 20 um, about why this is written down and um, the last verse of the passage in Matthew 5 that we have here um, why good works would be undertaken Um, and I think this has to do a lot with being spirit led so I'm thinking of um, my academic rating as a doctoral student right now. I'm thinking of um, my previous career in pastoral ministry and how um, I would think about my teaching and my preaching in that context as well. Um, I think a lot about being spirit-led has to do with our motivations for what we do in teaching and ministry. Um, what if we could say, I have written this article so that someone may come to believe, or that I am, um, I am leading the congregation in this service ministry so that God would be glorified. Um, I think that the Spirit works within us with these kinds of motivations so that we recognize that what the um, the why of what we're doing that's what you're talking about so, Tim I think I've got another question for you as I, as I look at these <laughs> passages so two things jump out at me about the Second Corinthians passage um, Second Corinthians 5 and um, the John 20 question that I want to connect to something that you said this morning so you, you, you talked about um, when you welcome new members in the church. It sounds like, especially when people are making a profession, you, you talk about what's behind them and what's in front of them. Um, so in, in, in 2 Corinthians um, uh, 5, Paul says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Um, and I'm struck here in John 20, uh, 21 and 22. So when, when Jesus says, just as I was sent, I'm sending you, and then he breathes out on them. Uh, and that feels that feels a lot like maybe an act of creation, mm-hmm. right? Like a Genesis two kind of God breathing and creating, so that there's this sending out that is that's that's empowered by the Spirit, created by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you were willing to say something about. I mean, since we're talking practically, you said about yeah. what it means to live under the Spirit. I mean, uh, what does it mean for people not to have their past? Erased, but to have a kind of a, mm. some kind of break. There's an act of creation that allows them to go forward. What's the? Mm. How does that function in their lives of discipleship? Mm. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, so I want to I, I want I, I you all kind of walk with me as I walk through this in my head. Mm-hmm. With um, when I'm saying that, what am I saying to, to them? Um, we believe that there's more in front of us yeah. and there is behind us, and it's better if we walk into it. To, together, that 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 what's behind us is is not that it is irrelevant now, 
but it is it is necessary for us to glance, not stare. Mm -hmm. And and for us to realize that in, in in its totality, it it still comprises who we are, even in its brokenness, even in its guilt, and even in its shame. But the fact that in Christ, in Christ, this total sufficiency and supremacy, that we we find that we are totally complete, and even that. Mm -hmm. plays a function in who we are and how we see what is in front of us. Mm -hmm. So that I don't want you to forget, I want you to realize how 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 in Christ we have been given clearer a clearer portrait of what is in front of us and, and this sense of breathing on us, this empowerment that, that happens empowering um, but also um, suggesting to us the importance of dependency mm. um, as we press into this place. We, we shall walk into it together, this unknown, this uncertain terrain that we have to travel together that we're confident is going to have some roadblocks and hazards. But in Christ, um, there, there, is this, there is this confidence that this new creation that I am is no longer constrained by the old but in totality, I am stronger, and I I realize I realize that I am not my own. I can borrow the price and feel like a Baptist preacher. Yeah, you know, I'm like, wow, you took somebody like me, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to sh share with them. That, that I want you to see in Christ. Um, you, you, you know, as you as you walk forward, and, and again, you're not doing this alone. Mm -hmm. And again, there's that there's that one commission. But it's not just us; it's it's how the Holy Spirit will guide and, and, and direct you and empower you. In the in the whole missional little discussion, as we've noted since the days of the Gospel Our Culture Network. This has been probably the most frequently cited biblical passage, and it's also which which one there? The as my father has sent me, so I send you. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's the fundamental text that Leslie Newbigin uses to develop his whole mission of ecclesiology, and and they, 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 there's a particular emphasis in that conversation, which I think has a real bearing for how how we are shaped for our witness. And that's this as-so relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's going on in there? Uh, I, I came across years ago when I became a, a involved as a theological educator with Young Life of this language of incarnational witness. And it was new to me. And I was still located in Germany. It was not only new to the Germans, it was impossible. You can't make incarnation into an adjective in German. And if you can't do it in German, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so, <laughs> that has changed in the time. They now have incarnatolish. They can now say it in German. But what Young Life had discovered, and this is actually something that was learned from John Mackay. I'm trying this down. And that is the, 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 the formative thrust of this encounter, as my father sent me, so I sent you, is that, that we are to embody God's good grace in Jesus Christ as Christ embodies God for us. That there is a, uh, in, in, in the Missio Dei, the Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. 
the triune God that sends the church. And I like to always add to that that the church sends each member weekly into the mission field. There's, and, and th- this, I think, is an enormously generative approach because it leads us to, to, to look at all of the passages where Jesus is explicit, explicitly preparing the disciples. Think of the great final discourse in John's Gospel and then the, the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, the, this formation is going on so that they can become apostles and continue the message and, and testify to the world that wherever they go, Christ goes with them. It's, I think it's a, I have to also say, out of fairness, Karl Barth never liked this information, this in, uh, focus upon understanding incarnation as a paradigm for, for Christian living, for the way witness happens. And it is, it can become a very Catholic doctrine, the church, the church is the prolongation of Christ. But I think you can do it in such a way that that doesn't happen, and we get this fundamental emphasis upon how you lead your life is the first form of witness that you practice in the world. And that's really rooted in this concept. Mm-hmm. I think I'm wondering if we're going to... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, should we ripple out? Yeah. After your comment. Yeah. I, well, I, I guess um, preacher me was afraid we would miss Thomas. Because mm. um, yeah. Thomas lived <laughs> this earlier, and I was like, take a bite, go. Um, this whole thing of Thomas getting a bad rap. Yeah. I feel like Jesus is hard on him here. I, I don't know if it's Jesus it, so much as it us. Yeah. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, he doubted it. I think Thomas wanted in on the intimacy, the experience that they had. Yeah, right. I just want to. I just want to touch too. Mm-hmm. I, I want the intimacy too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give me that privilege to to see mm-hmm. Jesus. Bring me in. Draw me in. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. Seriously, yeah. let me come in and experience this closeness with you. Mm-hmm. And and I I I I've, I've preached this a number of times, and I'm I'm like. That's us. I, I want that intimacy. Mm-hmm. I, I want I want those yeah. moments where they nailed you in your life. Let me touch. Mm-hmm. Let me feel. Let me experience. Mm-hmm. Let, let me let me have that intimate moment. I don't want just a reflective, informative relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Don't I, I don't want to sit in the pews. I want to get up and come. Touch you. I want to feel you breathe on me. Mm-hmm. I want to feel your breath on the nape of my neck. Mm-hmm. Me too. You know, let me see. Let me feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Thomas yeah. yeah. is doing. Yeah. That's, 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 that's powerful. That's but at the same time, I want to. I think it's important at this point in John's mm-hmm. Gospel to see that what Jesus is saying to Thomas is, is of absolute urgency for the apostolic mission that is about to unfold because the vast majority of those who will confess Christ, will not have seen him. And so he's, I think, theologically, he's making the point, uh, you you are allowed to see him, and that was a great blessing to you, but what God intends to do is to have this message go into all the world where most of those who respond will not see him, and that is not a problem. 
So there's a very important missional assurance in, in the way that plot comes to this statement, blessed are those who believe not having seen him. No, go ahead, Ross. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder, too, if that's where um, the, the breathing of the Spirit comes about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we, may, we may not be able to touch his hands and put our fingers into the wound, but the presence of the Spirit gives us a, a way to... In a sense, do that, you know what I mean? Um, the intimacy, right? Yeah. The presence of the Spirit um, allows us, in a way, to be able to do what Thomas yeah. yearned to do that intimacy with God, to be in there with Jesus. Um, and, and I think, as, uh, as uh, members, leaders of the church, we need those moments. I mean, even the people, everybody needs those moments, right? Not just the leaders, the people in the pews. We need those moments where we have that deep intimacy with God and with the Spirit um, to refresh us, to revive us, to give us new life, to give us, to help us see again. Because sometimes, you know, just the, the day-to-day grind, the day-to-day duties, Sometimes our vision gets obscured, our focus, but to have that um, renewing presence of the Spirit mm-hmm. like causes us to see anew yeah. and afresh, and mm-hmm. to see again, and to hear again as well. Um, right. So I think the Spirit is that link mm-hmm. there. Yeah. That's great. I think that was some of the, the sorry, that was some of the, when that devotion, uh, Jesus Calling, became so yeah. huge. I forget the person who wrote it. And I know there were, yeah, there were, yeah, Sarah Young, that's right. Uh, and there were, you know, I heard a number of people debating the theological correctness of it. And stuff. I was like, yeah, but we have to pay attention to why are folks list like, and it was changing some pronouns to that. It was, it was that I'm being addressed. There was something of that intimacy uh, in that, and that 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 yearning, that longing to be um, for that energy to be there. Yeah. When when the invitation came, we're gonna have a conference of missional herd monitors if you'd like us to, to participate in that. Oh yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more what you mean. <laughs> Struggling to, I'd love to participate in that if I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> 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 I'm just back to a, a, I don't know, was that last night or this morning? I mean, this is, it's only a term that's valuable because it helps us see something we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, you know, the, the, the real language is um, God, God invites us into a relationship of of love. We're invited to lay down our weapons and um, return to the one who calls us beloved and then be part of God reconciling the world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, you could say this, this whole discussion is about how do we remember the good news and, and then realize that all of scripture is given to tell us what does it mean to be 
in relationship with God as a beloved daughter or son? And, and what does it mean then to be God's family, the body of Christ, telling other people mm-hmm. that God is for you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What did you say? You, I'm so sorry. You yeah. said it is, um, it is because it reminds us. Oh, but because we've forgotten. Or we value. You said something about only the value. term missional hermeneutics. Is, it's only value is because it reminds us something that we've that, that we've forgotten. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. you're right. I mean, hermeneutics is one of those words that, like, I never use that in my daily life. <laughs> it's like exegesis. <laughs> we sort of find ourselves yeah. there, but you can't understand the New Testament at all. We don't. We don't mean. It, yeah. It's not as trod as first encountered in the New Testament. Right. right. And um, the story of Israel is um, foundational to understanding who God is. You know, when God appears to Moses and says, either I am who I am or I will be who I will be, it's, it's God being for us that shows us who God is. Um, so I think that's, that's a really crucial move to, to understand that just as, as Jesus very particular incarnate life as a Palestinian Jewish peasant is a model for us of our own humanity in our own context. Um, Israel's life with God is a very particular model for what it is for us, many of us, most of us now Gentiles, to be God's people. And that these stories have to be read together backwards and forwards. And um, But that's one of the, the, well, that's the gift of Scripture, is that we're invited to inhabit these stories. And I would just add to that, um, in chapter 11, chapter 11 in this letter, Paul kind of lifts up this, so part of the reason for the letter is that these um, missionaries have come from outside, right? They've come into this congregation and they are, in a sense, wreaking havoc upon the Corinthian congregation. And in chapter 11, Paul kind of outlines kind of what they're doing to the Corinthian congregation. They're oppressing them. They're taking advantage of them. They're enslaving them. He uses these very profound verbs. And he says, you're putting up with it, and you shouldn't be putting up with this. And so um, when we think about the lens of oppression, and Paul reminds the Corinthians, the gospel is not about oppression. The gospel is not about injustice. The gospel is a liberating gospel. And so these people who are coming in, preaching this different gospel in which they are enslaving you and taking advantage of you, this is not the gospel. Remember the gospel that you received. So I think um, when you think about Exodus and liberation and how um, Israel was delivered from, from oppression, and then when you get to chapter 11, Paul is saying that's what the gospel is, deliverance, liberation, um, and so hold fast to what you've been given. Mm-hmm. So I think you can see those Exodus echoes, if you will, even later on in the letter in chapter 11. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I appreciate the observation and the question because there's so many tensions, right, with um, the presence of the, of the Spirit. I mean, you know, I think there's a tension all of us should feel, probably do feel, with the idea that we've set up a religion around following a person who was constantly in conflict with religious systems. Um, there's, a, there's an inherent tension in that whole thing um, because systems are designed. I mean, it, it, I think about as we're coming up to Holy Week, how many times Caiaphas, I think about Caiaphas a lot. 
right? I mean, th- kind of like Thomas. I mean, Caiaphas is one of those people. It's like it's better for one person to suffer than for the whole nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too. Yeah. There's a certain logic in systems to that. Mm-hmm. Systems function mm-hmm. often with that in mind, and then and and we follow, but we follow Jesus who continue on the way to Jairus's house, stops and talks to an emerging woman because she is an individual has personhood and worth mm-hmm. our systems struggle with that um, and, and, and the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's call on that is that in some ways to me is that constant reminder of the tension in the system right and some of what I my wife has a little charismatic background um, in the UK which is totally different than the charismatic background in some, some ways here, but in some ways it's not. And I was talking to Dr. Bowens about this last night. I appreciated her talking about that missional is not as much of a stretch potentially for people where the Holy Spirit is more um, uh, easily embraced. I don't know what the right, the right term is, but because part of what we do is we, we talk about it and the Holy Spirit's meant to be encountered not discussed or studied, I think. In the end, the Holy Spirit is, is the encounter of the living God and the power of the living God. And um, so one of the ways that we, we try to do that in ways that are kind of laughable to many, but because we're Presbyterians, we feel like we're really on thin ice, are to create unscripted moments in worship, to create unscripted moments in our studies to, to have moments like in our small group curriculum where it's not point A, point B, point C, point D, point it's like guided but then the spirit may do something and try to create room for the thing that God wants to do um, that may be uh, unexpected so because I, I just think that I, I, I've been a part of and so I've participated in many different not, not many different we don't but studies on the spirit and there's something, there's an inherent tension in, in doing that. Does that make sense? And like breaking down and linearly looking at the, at the spirit, the etymology of the word and everything else. And at some point, spirit's meant to be experienced. And so I think that we try to create room for that. I mean, you've talked about creating an invitation for people to come forward. And that's a moment where it's, it, it, I remember first time I keynoted at a conference where that was invited, and I was like, I don't do that. There were theological parts of that, but then there were also parts where it was like, I just don't like that, that, that out-of-control moment. <laughs> I'm going to invite somebody, and no one might respond. And I, I don't know that I can look at that public shaming, right? Uh, because in the end, it's about me. And, and, but those are the parts. So I, we try to find ways that we, we seek to encounter that, rather than just discuss it, but it's hard. And it's hard in any system, especially a church like us where we have four services. And so it's like, Holy Spirit can work, but if you go more than five minutes long, it starts, the trains start coming off the track real fast um, with that. So it's, but you just sit in the tension of it. Yeah, interesting. Well, I I think my answer is yes. Um, Talking about the encounter and understanding the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. I did a series on this several years ago. It was called Power. Um, mm. As I'm sure, I think I, I, I think that it was deficient in many ways, but but it, it was about the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and um, for us contextually, of course, you know that's we we desperately desire to meet the Holy Spirit every 
than we. Um, and and so we're very scripted in what we do, but we, 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 we are very conscious of if the Holy Spirit moves and there needs to be a change, we will change. And there has been plenty of times where there is a move during praise and worship, and mm. we never get to welcome and video and, you know, and, you know, sometimes it's it's so powerful, mm. I have to discern whether or not to get up and preach. There were plenty of times, and I'll tell you this, where I didn't even preach, and, 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 and during praise and worship, the Holy Spirit moved so heavily, and we were so open, that I didn't preach, and I remember those days, we had 30 people join. Wow. Mm. Come to Christ. The, the join is the selfish. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. But, but, but they came to Christ. Um, and, and, and so, because inside you're thinking, man, i got to preach because they're not going to be satisfied if I don't preach. No. It's not about you. The expectation is the experience with the Holy Spirit that we, we want that encounter. Um, and, and I thought we veered away from it at one point now we're really getting back to it now so that yeah. you, you never know what will happen for us yeah. we are back to Costco to the heart I'm telling you right? we will take off running <laughs> and uh, I tease them there's a track around the church you know? and we, we we want to make sure that we're extremely informative and that that you you, you sense deep theological commitment to truth mm. uh, you really are open to the Holy Spirit's move Always bring moves. Yep. Everything else is same. Yep. Yeah. 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 There's desperation for that, and I want. I think we all want that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to learn not to fight the Holy Spirit, not to fight God for His glory. Yes. Only this is just the 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 Johanna and scholar in me, but I mean, there's really, I, I love the way you, you described it, that the Holy Spirit took over and people came to Christ. That There's no conflict between Jesus and the Spirit. Right, and, right. And, and in John's Gospel, in, in chapter 16, you know, he says, the Spirit will glorify me. Yeah. He'll take what is mine and give it to you, because everything I have is from the Father. Uh-huh. That, that, that a robust Trinitarian theology makes us realize that to follow the person, Jesus, is to abide with God, to, to be connected with the power of the Spirit is to know Jesus. That, yeah. right. that these, these all go together. Yeah. Um, and, and we get into trouble if we separate them or set them right. one against the other. That's right. That's right. Want to add something? Yeah, I will I'll risk a story if that's okay. Um, uh, in thinking about this, this question, Tom, about the Spirit and um, um, Spirit among Presbyterians, um, uh, I asked a question earlier about you know, flip side of the coin. You know, does does is there something that that can numb us mm-hmm. to God's mm-hmm. presence? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and this this is along those lines. I, I had the great gift last December to go to Nigeria, my my first trip to mm-hmm. uh, West Africa, uh, with Professor Afe Arogami, who teaches here, with Dean Jack Lapsley. We were uh, going uh, at the invitation of the the world's fastest growing um, Pentecostal church, the Redeemed. Christian Church of God um, in Nigeria. And we were going to their Holy Ghost Conference um, uh, held every December. It's their, it's their annual uh, uh, revival. Um, over over two million people come to the camp um, uh, for this, this uh, the Holy Ghost Congress. And so um, 
Uh, we went, arrived in Nigeria, we went to this camp. This annual camp has become a municipality of 40,000 people. <laughs> um, and they have huge superstructures, uh, outdoor sort of uh, pavilions. Um, um, one of them is one kilometer square. Um, so each, oh my gosh. each edge is a kilometer long. They just built a new one that's three kilometers by three kilometers. Um, when they do the altar call, they have these huge wide aisles and they have to send pickup trucks down because you know someone someone could be coming from four wow. kilometers away. Like you can't I mean you gotta get people up there. So so we were we were we were at the first we were we, we, we went to the first night of this of this conference um, at which there would be roughly half a million people. Um, and before and there was an intimate gathering of about a thousand people um, invited by the head pastor um, and the head pastor came out, uh, Enoch Deboer, um, and asked all of the of, of the guests of the, uh, the you know to to pray with and for him for the first night of the revival and for the five nights and so you know there was Afe and Jack and me and so 997 people began praying ecstatically in the spirit. It was deeply uncomfortable for me. This kid from North Dakota, Lutheran turned Presbyterian, uh, and and I, I, I cycled. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life. I cycled through a whole bunch of stuff. I just I felt myself kind of tighten up and be uncomfortable, and then I felt myself saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what I think about this. I've I've never experienced this, and you know, do I do I think this is legitimate? It's so I mean it's. Um, and then it just it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, like do I do I think nine hundred ninety seven people in this room are having an inauthentic like, <laughs> self cause experience right. of some kind? Why why don't I experience the spirit like this? Mm. It's because I'm from the West. I'm in a white church, and I grew up. In, I mean, so I just began to have this sort of existential crisis about like what what is it in my life mm-hmm. that sort of makes me numb. To, to that kind of openness to God's presence, and I, I don't have an answer to that. I'm still, I'm still wrestling with this. I mean, five months later, I'm still trying to figure out what that was all about. Um, but I do think um, that there is there is a serious need uh, for parts of the church in the United States to to ask this question about why we we seem to be more comfortable with texts about Jesus and texts about the Spirit make us a little more. Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable, and what that says about our lived experience and so forth. So, um, I, I don't think that you can think about missional hermeneutics, mm-hmm. about reading the New Testament and the way it sends us out into the world in the power of the Spirit, and not ask the question: mm-hmm. Are there things about being Western Christians that can prevent us from kind of God fully accessing us? We we um, the, when we got, did our church plant, the, the foundation that that had given us seed money to start our, our church. Uh, the family foundation and the the gentleman who started it was he was telling me a story one day. Mr. I, Mr. Cousins. That's on tape. Okay. Yes. Uh, and uh, he, he he was telling me that in the seventies he had helped to organize a Billy Graham crusade. You mm-hmm. you you know this story. And he I I've never been to a Billy Graham crusade. Never had the chance to go. Don't. It's not part of my background is that. I don't mean it positive or negative, but he brought it and he said that, that some of what was interesting, he said the two things that, that he took away from that event was that, number one, um, Billy Graham insisted that both the crusade and the organizing team had to be 50-50 integrated 
black and white in the 70s, and apparently Billy Graham started doing that uh, in the 1960s, I believe, of insisting that there was, in, in, in any of his crusades, that um, there was no segregation in the leadership or in the, in the place where the crusade would take place. Um, but, but Tom was saying that, that one day um, Billy Graham came for this crusade to begin, and he said, uh, he said, uh, what do you, what do you think of, of the presence of evil in the world? And Tom said, well, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, so I can study it and I, you know, mm-hmm. talk about why I don't believe in this stuff. And everything else. Billy, he said, Billy Graham looked at him and said, by the end of this crusade, you will know that evil is real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Tom said, well, wonderful. <laughs> he said the night before the crusade MARTA, the rapid transit system the bus subway system in Atlanta for the only time the bus drivers who were supposed to drive people from the parking lots to the crusade went on strike for the first and only time an unannounced strike and then they had a sound system in the stadium and a backup sound system and both of them went out on the first night and he said that um, but he said that before that the Oh, that was in the rehearsals. And the, before the first night, he got up at about 4 in the morning, and there were, he heard all this noise in his house, and he went downstairs. And Billy Graham's team was all up. And they said, well, Tom said, well, is something wrong? And he said, no, we just had to drop Billy off. And he said, well, we had to drop him off where? And they said, well, he just has this thing, and he doesn't want to do it with the cameras. He does it by himself. They went, and Billy Graham, from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the first night before crusade, was praying on his knees on City Hall steps. And he does that in every location where a crusade was held. There's something as a pastor that's challenging to me in that, right? That, that, that not for the cameras, not for anything else. From 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., praying on the steps of his knees by himself in City Hall. And I think about that in terms of, of just that understanding and that reliance on the Spirit of whatever that is going to be. Um, Tom ended the story by telling he stood up at his church uh, the following Sunday, and someone said, the pastor, Vernon Royal, said, Tom, come up here and tell us about what you learned. He said, after the whole thing, he said, I, I he stood up and he, he said, I don't like public speaking and I wasn't prepared. And I said, I learned that the devil was real and <laughs> the prayer works. That's not hard, you know, for, for, for me, you know, that's not a foreign concept. You know, you hear, you know, you're on these from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think that that comes through, um, you know, having to deal with some struggle, some brokenness. Yeah. Because yeah. I wasn't open, I wasn't always, you know, open mm-hmm. to this move of the Holy Spirit. You know, and, and, and I was very Morehouse keen in. And um, th- things had to be a certain way, and, and it was even more solidified when I came to Princeton. Mm. And uh, but then I, I I became pastor, and I, I got broken, mm. and, and uh, I realized the necessity to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain and empower me. And when you have those moments, those mm. those moments where it you sense the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. That is transformative, mm-hmm. and 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 my church knew it. It's like, oh my God, Pastor Stone shouting today, and and I have no problem with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, I, I still believe in 
This is a formality and sacredness and mm. worship spirit. But when the Holy Spirit moves, the Holy Spirit yeah. moves. And I would not get a woman for interference. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, um, but there, there are times, I'll say this, there are times, though, when it's not always the Holy Spirit. Mm. Mm. And there are times when, you know, church will go up, you know, and my... You know, worship leader look at me, do we keep going? Do we let the organist go and push him? Mm. And, uh, you know, somebody leaned over and said, oh, the Holy Spirit's in there. I was like, mm, that ain't the Holy Spirit. Mm. That's the drama scene. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I always thought, don't let three or four people try to dictate what happens, you know, because they get up and they want to fall out. Mm. And that ain't the Holy Spirit. Come on, quiet it down. It's having an mm. And so I strove if you have to. Yeah, yeah. You have to discern it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah.